You're listening to She is Courageous, a podcast designed to help you step out in boldness, pursue your calling, and grow in faith so that you can be an authentic follower of Jesus. Hosted by Rachel Rupert. Well, hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. I've been really excited to start talking about some of these new topics, and if you haven't heard me talk about it before, I'm kind of venturing into some new territory, and I'm going to be looking at some of the really hard questions in faith and some of the things that are consistently challenged in Christianity. Today, we're going to be talking about hell, which is a crazy topic, and I can't wait to share more about it with you because it really is one of those deep topics. In preparing for these episodes, the topic of hell was the most thought-provoking, interesting, and challenging topics that I was dealing with. It's one of those ones that I was really concerned I wouldn't be able to come up with a good answer because I don't know everything and I can do the best that I can to kind of approach a really big topic, but you just never know what you're going to find out. And I will tell you, I'm recording this with very much a lot of excitement because I feel like the answers that I've found have been really encouraging and very helpful in helping me define where God is in all of this and how it relates to my faith in him. And I am excited to share that with you. But I personally am finding this information very, very interesting and it has been really fun to go through this topic. So just stick with me and be patient. I'm excited to hear what you think about it. So let's go ahead and dive in. One of the biggest things about the topic of hell is how it kind of threatens our understanding of God. As a Christian, we know God is good. God is love, right? He describes himself in Exodus 34 as he passes by Moses as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. So we know God has proclaimed himself to be good, but then we know about hell. I looked up the definition of hell, and here's what it says. Hell is a place regarded in various religions as a spiritual realm of evil and suffering, often traditionally depicted as a place of perpetual fire beneath the earth where the wicked are punished after death. That doesn't make me feel very good, if I'm being honest. Hell is a scary place. It's a place of eternal torment and suffering. It's the stuff of every child's nightmares. My husband, Rudy, is the perfect example of a boy being raised in a very traditional Christian home and how terrified he was at the thought of hell. As I was prepping for this episode, he told me about this play that he had to go see when he was a kid and how terrible it was and how it gave him nightmares. It was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. If you haven't heard of this play, which I hadn't until recently, I highly encourage you to go take a look at it and tell me what you think. I linked it on my podcast episode page. It's a YouTube video. And if you want to see kind of what it was that was so terrifying to him, go ahead and skip to about 20 minutes in. I would be lying if I said that the thought of hell didn't play a part in me wanting to be saved as a child. 
It's messages like the one in this play that serve as a traumatic motivator rather than an objective look at the doctrine of hell or even the gospel message. It's hard to understand how hell plays a part in the message of Christianity when we portray it in such a crazy, over-exaggerated way. And when we emphasize it to the degree of plays like this or other ways that pastors promote it trying to get people saved, it makes it sound like we're telling them about the boogeyman. It's like this dramatic fairy tale or like Santa Claus is keeping his notes and his list together of the naughty and nice. It's almost unbelievable to a degree. Maybe you've never thought about it that way. I know for me, growing up in the church, I never really questioned the existence of hell. I heard about how terrible it was, I got saved, and I listened to the messages when my pastors preached about it. It's one of those things that has always been a little uncomfortable, but you kind of just keep it in the back of your mind. It's only recently, as I've looked into more of the differing beliefs in Christianity, that I even realized hell was as controversial of a topic as it is. As I started digging into like some of the info and content out there, I actually really could sympathize and understand some of the concerns and arguments against the existence of hell. It's actually not a huge stretch to understand and see why people don't believe in it. I think first and foremost, the reason why people are so uncomfortable and easy to dismiss hell is because it does sound contradictory to God's nature. When we know that God is abounding in love and he's merciful, doesn't it kind of seem strange and uncomfortable to know that there is this hidden corner of the story where we see this great, wonderful, loving God sending people to eternal punishment and torment? As we get into this topic, you'll see the theme of the greatest challenges with hell is understanding the relationship with God and with hell. How do those things go together? One of the very reasons that progressive Christians tend to challenge the existence of hell is because to them it seems like it contradicts God's nature. Some of the different beliefs about hell and what happens when people go to hell, such as like universalism or annihilism, those types of things come with grappling the idea of a merciful God inflicting such a harsh, eternal punishment. Okay, so let's ask some questions. Why is hell such a hot topic? Excuse the pun. I'm sorry, I had to do it. Hell poses a lot of hard questions that directly impact our belief about God. Some of the toughest questions related to hell are, why would God create a hell if he loves people? Why would God feel like he has to punish, or what kind of God would punish his own son? How can God inflict eternal punishment based on one lifetime of decisions? And how can he send people to the same fate and judgment as Satan himself? Are people really that bad? Do they all deserve that? A lot of skepticism around the topic of hell comes from, understandably, the use of hell as a coercive tool to salvation. In doing research for this topic, I looked at some conversations and information put out there by people who were challenging the existence of hell. One of them that is, has become very popular is Brenda Davies from God is Gray. Just as a side note, this podcast is very much a progressive Christian podcast, so if you're going to explore anything put out by her, just keep that in mind. I listened to an entire interview, which I'll link on my show notes if you're curious, that was focused on debunking the existence of hell. 
most of the driving motivations behind this particular view on hell, as well as others I've seen, is feeling like churches or other spiritual symbols of authority use fear as a motivator, this fear of hell, to motivate and manipulate people to do what they want them to. I mean, case in point, heaven's gates and hell's flames. They describe the way hell was used in their own personal faith journey as abusive. And we'll get into that a little bit more later on. Let's put our emotions about hell aside for a second, and let's just talk about the facts. If you believe in the Bible and you follow the Bible, if you believe in Jesus, then for me, it's pretty black and white. You have to believe in the existence of hell. Listen, I know, I know, it is uncomfortable. I know that there are unanswered questions echoing in the back of your mind. And trust me, even as I dove into this topic, at first, I felt very uncomfortable asking myself the hard questions. When I first started researching, I almost wanted to have an existential crisis. When you have to think about the reality of hell as an actual, real place, it's tough. It's tough to think that God sends people to hell. I very much understand and sympathize why some people would much rather discard the idea altogether because it feels better. It feels more on brand with the all-loving aspects of God and it's more appetizing to us. When you choose to believe in hell, it's uncomfortable to ask questions like, why would God feel like he has to punish? What kind of God would punish his own son? As I opened this podcast, I quoted part of the Bible where Moses sees God walking by. As God is walking by, he's proclaiming of himself, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What I did not quote was the verse right after it, which immediately says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This came out of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It doesn't seem like God can both be slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving, yet at the same time be an inflictor of punishment. But to understand this, we need to talk about justice and mercy. We have a lot to cover in this episode, so get ready for a very cliff note version because we got we to gotta keep going, guys. Okay, God cannot be faithful and good if he allows wickedness to reign. To not be just is to not protect the righteous. Let's think of justice as it relates to our everyday life. If you're walking down the street and out of nowhere, some guy comes up to you, beats you up, takes your money, and runs off, was that fair? Did you do anything to deserve that? We have a police force in place to enforce justice. That means to protect people from being hurt or wronged, whether that's physically, financially, whatever. It also means that in order to protect, you also have to put a stop to those who are causing pain or injustice to take place. If God's mercy overpowered his justice and he let everyone get away with every sin and every evil, then that means he would not be good because he would be allowing evil to run rampant. He would not be able to protect those who are righteous because his mercy would limit him from acting. Justice is a good thing, 
The part we're uncomfortable with is when it extends to the eternal judgment into hell. I think where people get uncomfortable is that it feels like hell is an absence of mercy and that justice is too harsh. So why are people so anti-hell? Earlier, I touched on hell being used as a fear tactic in salvation. Though I understand the reason why some pastors use hell as a motivator in salvation and altar calls, it very often can be done wrong. I won't deny the fact that there are instances where hell is used as a manipulative tool or motivator, and as Brenda Davies said, it can be abusive. I'm very tempted to go off on a tangent about how teaching theology incorrectly is incredibly damaging, but hey, that's not the point of this episode. I'll just leave us here with a quote from one of my favorite books I read in college. In the Openness of God by Clark Pinnock, Richard Rice, John Sanders, William Hasker, and David Basinger, they say, How can we expect Christians to delight in God or outsiders to seek God if we portray God in biblically flawed, rationally suspect, and existentially repugnant ways? Why do pastors and Christians so frequently look at hell as a motivational tool for salvation? The answer comes when you take a look at our American history, surprisingly. The Great Awakening was a series of religious revivals that took place in America between the 18th and 20th centuries. The First Great Awakening began in the American colonies between the 1720s and the 1740s. The Great Awakening was birthed out of a response to this increased secularization of society. One of the primary leaders in this revival was Jonathan Edwards. And if you recognize the name, then you probably know where I'm going with this one. His most famous sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Let's take a look, shall we? The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. That's comforting, isn't it? Overwhelmingly, the focus of the First Great Awakening was on conversion, with fear as the primary motivator. It's kind of sad if you think about it. I don't think it's coincidental at all that American Christianity still holds on to so much of this tactic and theme, trying to save people from hell rather than introduce them to a God who loves them and wants relationship with them. There are a lot of great things in modern Christianity, and I think we're getting better at this, but so many still wrestle with their upbringing and legalistic practices that haven't truly represented the nature of Christ. I know that's not every case, but it seems like the rejection of hell and the way people were brought up in legalistic evangelical circles, those coincide with each other. So let's look at what the Bible says about hell. There is a progressive revelation of hell in the Bible. As we look at the words that are used to convey hell in the English language, the Old Testament uses the word sheol. Job 10, 20-22 is a great example of the use of sheol in the Old Testament. 
It says, Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and utter darkness, to the land of deepest night, of utter darkness and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Now, the Old Testament understanding of hell was very limited. I would say, just this is my personal opinion based on looking at the scriptures and some research, I would say Sheol probably isn't really a word that describes the hell that we come to understand in the New Testament. The Old Testament picture of Sheol is a land of oblivion, a land of darkness. It's the pit, the grave, a place of silence. One of the Psalms talks about how there is no praising the Lord from the grave. It's a solemn place, but it's not one of eternal torment. As we move through history within the context of the Bible, the revelation about hell becomes more clear as it gets to the New Testament. It's through the prophetic books of the Old Testament that we start to see this hope of salvation and resurrection, of salvation from Sheol. Jesus provides us this crystal clear picture of hell and of life in the kingdom of God. Now, here's where I just get confused with people who don't believe in the existence of hell that are Christian. And it's the fact that Jesus talks about hell probably more than any other figure in the Bible. If you've done research on this topic, there is a lot of debate about whether Jesus is actually referring to hell or just fire. Um, the Greek words that Jesus typically uses are Gehenna, or a little less frequently, he'll use Hades. Now, I've wrestled with whether I should do a deep dive into the words he used and whether that's super relevant to the message that I want to convey for this episode. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to have to leave you with a little tidbit and encourage you to study it for yourself if you're curious, because it's just not the focus of what I want to talk about. It's very interesting, but it's not the focus. So, Gehenna. Gehenna is a valley outside of the city of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, there was a valley that they used when the Israelites would sacrifice their children to Molech, the Ammonite god. There are some verses about this in the Old Testament. I will put those on my website. But this act of child sacrifice was detestable to God. And some people who argue against hell use this as a reference for debunking hell. They say, if God is finding this so detestable, well, then why would he create hell, which is, looks so similar to what they were doing to these children? I hope that where we land in the episode will kind of answer the question for you. But I wanted to do a little note on this. Isn't it interesting that a false god would mirror Satan's eternal picture? Does that speak more into Satan's desire for mankind or God's? You know, like that, that analogy. I mean, I'm looking at a false god demanding child sacrifice. I feel like that speaks more to Satan than it does to God. But, you know, whatever. Do your research and, you know, please, by all means, tell me what you come up with. Moving on. Jesus spoke about hell frequently. Contrary to some opposing views, I don't believe that he's making analogies. Matthew 25 is a great chapter where he uses several parables to explain the difference between eternal life and eternal punishment. He uses the parable of the ten virgins where the door to the wedding feast is shut, the parable of the talents where the wicked servant is cast into the outer darkness, and in verse 30 it says, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
And then he goes on in verse 31 to 46, and he's talking about the final judgment at his second return. Verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, which is the unrighteous, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I could quote a ton of other instances and verses where Jesus is talking about hell. Like, remember when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off? He says it's better to go through life with one hand than to enter hell with both. And I'll link some more verses on hell for you on my website again. But the bottom line is, Jesus talks about hell, right? He talks about hell. Can we agree that Jesus talks about hell? But did you catch what he said in Matthew 25, 41? He says that the eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. So back to the hardest question, one of the hardest questions, why would God create hell in the first place? Hell was created for Satan, not for us. One of the hardest questions about hell is why God would create a hell in the first place. Now, before I answer this, I need to make a very important statement that we all need to realize when it comes to any challenging question in our faith. You can walk back questions literally to before the dawn of time, but we can never truly know or understand fully what God is up to and why he does what he does. Isaiah 55, 8-9 is one of my favorite verses because it's an important reminder when we face these hard questions. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Let's not forget that we aren't dealing with an equal that owes us some explanation. I think we forget that sometimes. I know I have, especially when I'm hurt or frustrated and waiting for answers, which may or may not ever come. Faith requires us to trust God when there are gaps in our understanding. It's in these moments that you have to choose to trust that you know who God is and rely on his nature and character more than what you see him doing. So when we ask the question, why would a loving God create hell? We have to frame it in the context that we know he is a loving God. The Bible gives us a glimpse into the story of Satan, who was called Lucifer, before sin entered creation. Here are just a few verses. Luke ten eighteen. he says, Jesus says to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. Ezekiel 28, 14 and 15 says, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Maybe this is Christianity 101, but I wanted to cover it. Satan was an angel created by God that fell into sin after trying to glorify himself over God and a third of the angels fell with him. Hell was created for them. When God created the world and Adam and Eve, sin wasn't part of the equation, but it was after Satan entered the garden and tempted them that they too fell into sin. 
You might be asking, well, why did God allow them to sin or allow Satan into the garden knowing he would eventually cause them to fall into sin? To that, I answer you, hey, one topic at a time. One topic at a time. I would love to answer every single question, but gosh, how long is this episode going to take if I answered every single question that comes? Hey, I love where you're going with it, though. Isn't it cool that thinking through topics like this just opens up more curiosity about God's nature? I really hope that it sparks this desire for personal study. Do some research on it if you're curious. Ask some hard questions. Anyways, the short response to this is free will. God wants people to have relationship with him, but he will never force himself on us. Back to the creation of hell. To summarize, God created hell for Satan and his fallen angels. It was never his desire for humanity. I think a lot of times people who misunderstand hell think of God as this angry, vengeful God who's looking for ways to get even. As I've studied this topic, it's opened my eyes to not just see the reality of hell, but the insane picture it paints of the mercy of God. What if I told you understanding hell actually emphasizes the amazing mercy of God? A lot of times we think about hell and humanity being affected by sin, and we want to blame God for allowing it to happen. We think about the suffering that we have to endure, the pain we have to go through, loss, death, sorrow. All of it affects us and it impacts us. The person without relationship with God and without really knowing God might picture him as far off and seated in his heavenly throne, unbothered by the agony humankind suffers. But Genesis 6-6 says that sin and evil grieved the Lord. The New Living Translation tells us that it broke his heart. Sin doesn't just hurt us. It hurts God too. Sin causes God pain. What's striking to me about the issue of hell is that despite the suffering and evil that's on the earth, God didn't distance himself. He's not the God of deism that creates the world and then moves along to something else, unimpacted and unconcerned with the outcome of his creation. God created a perfect world with every intention of being near to us. The time in the garden, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. He visited with him. Sin tore a gaping hole in his plan to dwell among us. But instead of giving up on mankind, he devised a way to redemption. Have you ever thought about the fact that when mankind fell into sin, God's plan of redemption eventually ended with his own death? That our perfect God died and sent himself to hell to save people from it. The Bible is the long story of the time it took for God to get his people from the fall to the cross. The plans to continue relating to them through Israel, through the high priest, then through kings when Israel begged him for a king. Through it all, God remained with them even when they ran from him, even when they disobeyed. What's even more beautiful is that every disobedient act, every fall, every tragedy, every sin— was worked into the plan for redemption. Jesus' bloodline is filled with instances of sin. David lusted after Bathsheba, and it was their son that was the next king. 
Before that, Boaz, the hero of our favorite love story in the Bible, is the son of Rahab the prostitute. God doesn't just tolerate us in our sin. He works with us. He intertwines himself with us. You can't tell me that God is looking to punish mankind when he himself got close to the very people who betrayed him and who grieve him daily. I love what Millard Erickson writes in Christian Theology. He says, The triune God knew that the second person would come to earth and be subject to numerous evils, hunger, fatigue, betrayal, ridicule, rejection, suffering, and in death. He did this to negate sin and thus its evil effects. God is a fellow sufferer with us of the evil in this world, and consequently he is able to deliver us from evil. What a measure of love this is. You can't tell me God mercilessly sends people to hell when Jesus himself descended to hell and retrieved the Old Testament saints. Don't believe me? Check out Matthew 27, 52. Isn't your mind blown to think about how God not only chose to stay close to humanity, but he chose to become humanity and suffer on the same pitiful level as we did, dying a death worse than any of us will probably ever experience so that he could create a way back to him and away from hell. It's ironic to me that we can focus so intensely on the existence of hell and yet ignore the lengths that Jesus went to spare us from it. Without hell, we can't truly understand the gravity of God's love for us and the lengths that he would go to show us that love. So you might be asking, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Even though he did everything he could to save us from it, he still sends people to hell, right? No, actually. That's the funny thing. I've heard people say this so many times, and I kind of just shrug and roll my eyes like, yeah, whatever, I've heard this before. But God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. When you don't understand the full context of what that means, it sounds kind of callous and it sounds insensitive. But again, I love what Erickson writes in Christian Theology. He said, Sin consists in the human's choosing to go his or her own way rather than follow God. Throughout life, a person says to God, in effect, leave me alone. Hell, the absence of God, is God simply giving that person at last what he or she has always asked for. It's not God, but one's own choice that sends a person to hell. Hell is a tough topic. And even all of this, all of this information that I just put out there, it doesn't answer every single question, right? I know people that I love and respect, even if I don't agree with them, who ask questions like, what about my mom who wasn't saved? What about this person? What about, is it my responsibility? Why would God give me this burden for this person? And what if I can't get them to convert, right? And I feel like so much of the bottlenecking in this, this concern is that we have marketed salvation as don't go to hell instead of realizing that if we could offer the understanding of this radical crazy loving god who has gone to extraordinary lengths has done everything in his power to express his love that i don't feel like it would be such a burden if we were communicating it the right way 
I hate that people get so turned off by God because people are trying to scare them into believing what they believe. And it, it, that in itself is contradictory to the nature of God. The Bible tells us God is love. Perfect love casts out fear. Hell is a reality, but it's not the motivator. I don't believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. It's because he has revealed himself as my savior and that I love him and I want to spend my life learning more about him because this stuff doesn't get old. Learning about this stuff does not get old. It gets more fascinating. I can open up my Bible and find something that just astounds me. And that relationship of getting to know God in all of his crazy glory and love, that's where we should be dwelling. There's a chapter of the Bible that it probably feels like maybe it doesn't directly correlate with this, but I feel like knowing how much God loves and is so long-suffering with the most unfaithful of people, I think it goes. And it it's one of those pictures of God that is so, like, we see God as, or we imagine God as this far-off God who is like so up there in the heavens. You don't really know what he's doing or what he's thinking. He Sometimes he feels distant, right? And, and maybe hard to reach. And there's sometimes these rare glimpses of this God that is so hard to even grasp the intimate love he has for people that it kind of like shakes you a little bit. So the, it's coming from Ezekiel 16, and I can't read the whole thing because it's pretty long, but I've got my Bible here if you hear any wrestling, but I just love this picture. I'm starting in verse 4. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour of honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you declares the Lord God. And that chapter goes on and just talks about how Israel chose to trust in in its beauty and, and turned away from God to seek other gods and other nations. But you see in this that God, even after this, right, as it's going into the but you betrayed me type thing, this isn't the end of the story. 
You know, Jesus is still coming. God still devises a way. When you think about how God has chosen to stick with people, hell seems so insignificant. If you grasp the reality of of what God has done for us, it just seems hard to not respond to that. And I know not everyone does. And I know that people are turned off by God. And I would challenge you and challenge people, Christians, to say that perhaps that's because of the way we're talking about God. The God of the Bible is a God that has gone to the utmost ends of the earth to express his love for us. And I feel like the failure comes when we focus on such a tiny, stupid little area as hell. I know hell is serious. I know it's uncomfortable, but it has no power. You know, like that's where I guess I land with this is hell really doesn't have any power. Even the eternal, (laughs) the eternal judgment has nothing on the love of God. I don't know where you land in whether you believe in hell or not. If this podcast helped you see a different perspective, then I feel like that is a success. I'm not trying to change your mind. I would love more than anything else is for you to encounter the love of God because that's what truthfully matters. At the end of the day, if you're pursuing a relationship with God and you're opening your Bible and letting God speak to you through it, then that's really the success because, and this goes with any topic, if we would just connect people to Jesus and show them who God is and how he loves them and help them have the tools to encounter him for themselves, God will do the rest of the work. Our job is to show people what he looks like, what he feels like, what he smells like, how he acts, not to force someone to change their behavior, not to scare them into following our rules, but to show people who God is, to give God the glory, to represent him on the earth as best as we can. And um, this topic has so often been a deterrent in our faith, and that's why I wanted to just break it open and talk about it, shed some light on it. And I feel like it has been a redemptive topic for me because now I see how cool it is that Jesus, that Jesus went to hell for us. I hope it was encouraging for you. I hope it opened up some new information for you and that it maybe even inspires you to, to kind of go into some of these hard topics and challenge yourself. I just want to encourage people to grow deeper in him and don't be afraid of hard topics. God is bigger than our doubt. God is bigger than our fears. God is bigger than the hard questions. And that's kind of what this new little turn in She is Courageous is about, is seeing that. God can hold all of this. He can He can withstand all these tough questions and we should be prepared and ready to spread the good news about who Jesus is. Not scare tactics, but who he really is. That's all I have for today and thank you for listening. I hope this encouraged you and inspired you to continue digging deeper in your relationship with God. If you're looking for new tools and resources to help you grow in your faith, you're not alone, check out my website at sheiscourageous.com. And if you visit this podcast show notes on my website, I will link all of the studies and the research that I shared as I prepared this episode. 
In the meantime, would you do me a favor? If you enjoyed this podcast, I would love if you could leave me a review and subscribe so that next time I post an episode, you get a notification. And if you really enjoyed it, feel free to share it on social media, text it to a friend, or do whatever it is you do to share things. Thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you.